All right, very brief recap. Uh, in James 1, the, the two big takeaways I suggested is that uh, James is calling us to see things more from God's perspective, which is not an omnipotent or omniscient perspective, but more learning to value what he values, learning to see things uh, according to uh, his system, uh, what he cares about, what he doesn't care about. Uh, that he, There's also a sense in which wisdom uh, invites us to have a long-term perspective, not just thinking in the moment, uh, but thinking about uh, long-term ramifications um, with what we value, with how we act, with how we treat others. Uh, and um, the end of James 1 says, Pure and faultless religion is this, to look after the orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Uh, so that, that's going to also, uh, I think, show up throughout James. What's it mean to do this religion well? Uh, it means to take care of the uh, most vulnerable and to keep oneself... Um, committed and unstained by worldly values. Uh, You see this kind of opposition between the world and godly wisdom. James 2 opens up uh, calling us not to show partiality uh, to the rich and against the poor. Uh, This flows really uh, naturally off of pure and just religion is to look after the orphans and widows in their distress. This also seems to fit the invitation to have a, a God's eye kind of perspective on things. How does God view the poor? He views them as special. He cares about them. Uh, how did Jesus come among us as a humble carpenter? What then uh, would be wise within this Christian religion but to care for the poor like Christ does and recognize that our Lord and Master and God came among us as one who was poor? So surely we wouldn't show um, favoritism towards the rich and... Um, shame the poor. The latter half of James 2 is summed up, faith without works is dead. And I said that he's probably talking here uh, works as in post-conversion deeds. Uh, So the kind of faith that doesn't show itself uh, in some sort of good works. And really in this context, it seems to be focused on good works toward the poor and the disadvantaged uh, is not quite Christian faith. It's very immature at best. Uh, I think uh, where I would have have ended on two points uh, is Jeremiah 7, and then I'll read a little bit from here. Uh, This idea of faith without works is dead, and how sometimes I think if we're not careful, we can use grace um, as a crutch, as, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do. And I'm reminded of Jeremiah 7. Uh, Keep in mind that the Old Testament grace was not an an unheard of idea. Uh, The Uh, Israelite people had a concept of grace. Uh, They had the temple system, which itself was grace. God was dwelling there among them. He gave them the sacrificial system, which offers forgiveness. Uh, So they, too, uh, recognizing a sense of grace and forgiveness, uh, find themselves guilty, here in Jeremiah 7, of relying on that. So here's what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, it's the way that Christians might say, Grace, grace, grace. They say, The temple, the temple, the temple. In other words, we got access to the temple. doesn't matter what we do. We've got Day of Atonement. we got it all taken care of. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. 
So don't say the temple, the temple, the temple. Don't trust in that. But sounds a lot like that, that passage in James. Don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So, uh, what James is telling the church, Jeremiah told uh, the Israelites, and apparently it continues to be something that we need to hear today. Uh, We don't settle for shallow claims or some sort of easy concept of grace, but we recognize uh, that we need to put this faith into action. I like how uh, the authors here summarize saving faith by definition means that the Spirit enters a person's life to begin conforming them to the likeness of Christ. This transformation cannot be quantified. In other words, it's not always easy to see how it's shaping us. And it may be different for every person in detail. So there's no point in comparing uh, how quickly or slowly I'm growing to how quickly or slowly someone else is growing. And it regularly involves many fits and starts or forward and backward steps. So this isn't about perfection. This isn't no stumbling. But over time, it does result in change living. And one of the key areas affected, at least here in James, will be concern for the poor and corollary actions to help them. So that brings us now into James 3, uh, where he now changes focus and talks about um, what we do with our words, or his main metaphor there is the tongue. So verse 1, chapter 3, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly or more severely. This has been a, uh, a heavy one for me uh, this week. Classes start back. I teach uh, the Bible at Lipscomb. I teach the Bible here. Um, this, is, this is not light stuff uh, for me to read. In that time, and maybe even now, there's a sense of um, status that sometimes goes with teaching. And I think that James is saying, don't pursue that for the status because uh, there is a, an other, another side to the coin there, and that's a more strict or more harsh judgment. Whether that means you'll be held to a higher standard or the punishment is more severe for going beyond, uh, neither of those are really good news. <laughs> uh, he says in that verse, that, for you know, you know this, um, and apparently, or maybe likely, He's saying, you know this because you should know some of the Jesus tradition that would have been floating around in that day. They might not have had access to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this oral tradition was going on here. Maybe let's say this was written in the 50s. Uh, and that might include stuff like um, Mark 12, 38 through 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. So these are signs of status. And these are signs of status in some of the most um, influential places. Uh, The marketplace, um, the synagogue, banquets. That's about the three most important social locations you have in the first century. And what are they doing? But they are caring about their clothing, which, which shows status and respect 
and seats which show status. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So uh, you can all look at me and uh, realize that, uh, that this applies to some degree to me, but I think all of us are called to be disciples and to witness to Christ, which means in another sense we're all called uh, to live this stuff out. And that seems to be part of what Jesus is getting at when he talks to the Pharisees and the lawyers and what James is saying here, um, especially following the previous chapter. Practice what you preach. Uh, don't talk about all these things and then go live differently because you'll be judged or punished more severely, but live this stuff out. Um, why he's highlighting uh, teaching, or as he's highlighting teaching, he seems to slightly shift the focus then to speech in general, and now it's going to certainly apply to teachers, those of us who speak, but since uh, all of us are involved in communication, uh, this isn't like he's writing a letter and decides he's going to develop, you know, devote a chapter to a few people. This applies to all of us. So, uh, moving on to verse 2. For all of us make many mistakes. All right, that's helpful uh, that even James is recognizing this. As he's calling us to maturity and perfection, as he's saying faith without works is dead, this isn't um, you make a mistake and you're out. We all make mistakes. So there is a recognition there of that. Um, so which helps us maybe understand what he's getting at with faith without works is dead. But anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. So, you know, first time through reading this, I think, is speech really that big of a deal as he's going to make it here? Really, if you can tame the tongue, if you can control the tongue, how does that show up in how you, you know, keep in check the rest of uh, your body and your actions? Uh, I think maybe a couple things here. One, this is wisdom literature, so we don't take it overly literally. Uh, It's certainly the case that someone who makes no mistakes in speaking, let's say you're mute, uh, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But I think what he's saying is, as I've been wrestling with this all week, um, is it's so difficult to control speech, those um, kind of impulse things where you lash out at somebody. Uh, or you've got that gossip that's just so sweet that you can't wait to share it, or that, that kind of cynicism, that, that poison you just want to share with somebody else. There, there's a sense in which it's just, well, tip of the tongue, right? You just want to, it's just hard not to do it. And because it's such an impulsive thing, maybe part of what James is getting at is, look, if you learn to control that, that impulse that's right there, that's so easy, then you'll be growing in strength to contain the other impulses that uh, aren't so readily um, active. Yeah. I think this is Proverbs 4 or something. I don't remember the, the reference, but there's the, the passage that says, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And, um, you know, like, whatever's in here is often what's going to come out. And so if you uh, back up in time a little bit from whenever you're speaking something that's on the tip of your tongue, you know, like you can do some prep work and, um, you know, regular preventative stuff to where you won't even be tempted to say that. Yeah, so you don't just start with a tongue to fix it. You start with the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, so this yeah. is, it's showing a heart issue 
The tongue is revealing the heart. Uh, so, yeah, to tame the tongue, you tame the heart. Yeah. Is, what is the word for purpose? Is the same word as translating mature sometimes? Um, let me see here. Yeah, uh, teleos. Yeah, so it's mature, complete, perfect. I think it's the same uh, that we get earlier um, where dealing with trials so that your faith may be made. Um, yeah, mature and complete. Same word in verse 4, chapter 1. Someone who had to make many speeches and taught many classes, both in business and in church. It's one of those frustrating things, and as you know, as, as a young teacher in your classes, as you look over the faces of those students and you say something and you have, you know exactly what the intent is you're trying to get across. <laughs> and to watch it register either, not at all, <laughs> perfectly or radically different. Yes. Uh, and then, and then, when you're trying in a changing environment like this, when you're trying to lead change, they say often you have to say the same thing at least five to eight times to a person hmm. before they really sometimes get it. Really? And, That's uh, helpful as a teacher of freshmen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just double that number. You have to keep saying it over and over. This is truly, uh, this is truly and, and think about many of these people perhaps desired the spiritual gift of teaching. In a, in, a, in a place and time where they did not have equal access to written word, yeah. you could go and challenge it privately. It was a challenge for those teachers. They were left behind. The apostles and prophets went off and on missionary journeys, and the teachers were left behind. Some of them strayed into that Judaizing thing, mm-hmm. where they were trying to lead them back into Judaism. So it was quite a quite a struggle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's helpful in multiple ways. Uh, verse verse three. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong, strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So he's going to, uh, as you see in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. At first this, this starts out like you can control the tongue. It's, it's kind of like a rudder uh, if you... If you, uh, if the steersman and the pilot uh, can can handle the rudder, then it's going to shape where the ship goes. Um, but as you're going to see, there's this kind of um, maybe uh, negative idea, uh, kind of a cynicism with anyone's real ability in and of themselves to control the tongue, as it ends in verse five. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. So ideally, if we can control our tongues, we can control the rest of ourselves, uh, as I've already kind of mentioned here. It's just so hard to do. Uh, this little, uh, what is it, a muscle? Is that what your tongue is, I guess? This little muscle is quite powerful. Um, it reminds me uh, of, of my, I used to wrestle with my dad when I was, you know, a little boy. Some of my fondest memories uh, wrestling with my dad. He wrestled in high school, and I don't know, if you have a good dad, you always kind of think that, um, that they're always going to be able to whip you, you know, like there's this kind of fun thing about that. And I never, you know, we'd always, we'd always be in competition and I kind of never wanted to beat him. There's just something fun about knowing your dad is better than you. Uh, but we would wrestle and he wrestled in high school. So I thought he must've been, you know, like this pro wrestler. Uh, but, but he would do this thing, uh, where he would just grab my head and I couldn't, you know, I'd be like swinging and, and try to get him. And he would just say, control the head, control the body. And I don't know if you've ever done that with a kid or with a puppy, you know, but, but there is a sense. You control the head, control the body. And as I read this, it's control the tongue, control the body. 
um, that's been kind of running running through my mind. Really, something else about this whole this whole chapter on speech, because when I first read, I was like, oh, this is boring. I don't want to talk about speech, and it seems pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, but then, you know, I read about it almost every night, you know, reading more and more, and, and so it's just on my mind, and I realize, oh my goodness, this is a constant struggle that I've just um, ignored, or I've been unaware of, or I haven't been thinking about, or whatever it might be. And I was struck by uh, how important it is to have that discipline of reading Scripture, kind of front to back, um, instead of Instead of going to scripture, which, you know, this is okay at times. What do I need? You know, I need some peace or I need to work on my prayer life. Or I, you know, so you, you flip to those passages. But what happens is you kind of define what scripture is going to be able to say to you. But when you do this kind of slow discipline thing and you work yourself slowly through like James, you realize I would have never looked at like, well, how do I work on my speech? You know, I wouldn't have even thought that was on my radar. But doing it and thinking about it, I realized sometimes scripture needs to tell me what I need instead of me going to scripture for what I think I need. Um, and so that's what's happened, uh, especially to me this week. So keep reading scripture slowly um, because it matters. Okay, verse six, hardest verse in this whole thing. I'll tell you what I think uh, is going on here. Oh, I left out one thing I wanted to read from this. Speaking of speech and the way sometimes um, we don't, uh, what all might be categorized under this uh, problems with speech. Uh, this person says, the rotten fruit of an untamed tongue include gossiping, belittling, cursing, which I think it's not swear words there as much as speaking negatively or um, about someone, bragging, manipulating, false teaching, exaggerating, complaining, flattering, lying, cynicism. You read this and you're like, oh, maybe some of this does apply to me. You know, like it's a lot easier when it's two or three of these, but when you keep going, yeah. And, and then this last point uh, before we, we keep going in here, I thought this was pretty wise. Uh, evangelical Christians, which Churches of Christ, at least Otter Creek, has kind of got a foot in the door there. Evangelical Christians have at times had a poor track record of speaking the truth in love in some situations, uh, whereas liberal Christians often have failed to speak the truth in love. So evangelicals often speak uh, what seems to be orthodoxy or what the, you know, kind of ethical truth, but often uh, with uh, venom and... Uh, and sometimes liberals are so happy to be loving that they forget to be truthful. So finding that balance uh, is important. Yes, I know that's an overly broad characterization, uh, but it might be the, um, the tendency of both sides. All right, verse 6, which is a mess of a verse. Uh, the tongue is a fire. I'll read this translation, then I'll tell you what I think it's saying. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of an iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. So I'm guessing as many different translations uh, represented is, uh, as many different ways this verse is um, reads. So the tongue is a fire. Okay, we got that. Next, uh, my translation says the tongue is placed among our members. Um, it can either say, the Greek here can be a middle or, 
which is reflexive or passive, which if you don't know what that means, it's essentially saying you can either read it, the tongue is placed or set among us. There's like no tip to this marker. Is there a marker over here? Yep. Or it can have this reflexive sense. The tongue places itself. Maybe doesn't make a, a big difference, but following verse 5, where the tongue is one who boasts, you get the sense kind of the, as the tongue is being personified, it's like it sets itself up. That's how I read it. It's not a big deal. Um, although I wouldn't read this, if, you, if you're here, I wouldn't read it necessarily as a divine passive, as though God sets this among you. He sets a world of unrighteousness or world of iniquity among you. I don't know that that's the best reading. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so the tongue is placed among our members as a, uh, a world of iniquity or a world of unrighteousness, which seems to, I mean, it's pretty obvious it's, it's a negative thing. World, whenever it shows up in James, is, seems to be that which is opposed to the wisdom of God. So here the tongue is, it's this boastful thing. It's often, um, it's often evil uh, rather than good. It stains the whole body and sets on fire. I've got the cycle of nature. Um, what else do y'all have? Does anyone have something like all of one's life? Course of the course. course of one's life. That's much better. Yeah, the course. That's so much better. Course of one's life. I would just scratch out anything you have that doesn't sound like that. Um, it's the, the language is something like the wheel of nature. Um, but in this context, the word nature is the same word that we got for one's natural face. Back when you look in the mirror, you see one's natural face. So it seems to be individual, one's life. And the word wheel uh, elsewhere seems to refer to like the course of the changes. So it's all of one's life. Really awkward way of saying this, but you can imagine 2,000 years from now, if someone was trying to translate some of our idioms about time, how weird they would look. So anyway, the tongue has this ability, if it's all of one's life or the course of one's life, it, it can affect everything, all of who you are throughout your life, and is itself set on fire uh, by hell or by Gehenna, some of yours might say. Um, he doesn't talk much about what he understands Gehenna to be, uh, but he's seeming to pick up on some of that first century idea where that's, that becomes a name for, for hell. Uh, so, Rob Bell's got it wrong here, but Gehenna is, um, it's a place in Second Kings where child sacrifices were offered, offered to Molech. Um, later, post-Jesus time, it's a trash heap where they burn stuff, uh, but sometimes that gets read back into the first century. But in the uh, first century Jewish world, it becomes kind of like a, a nickname for hell. Um, it's this bad place. It can be understood as the abode of Satan, which I think fits here as uh, this is um, influenced by evil. Which is, you know, we're, we're remembering what I said day one. Wisdom literature we don't take as, uh, you know, hyper-literally. That's kind of the genre. So it's not as though every one of us has got a tongue from hell. It's just James is saying it's kind of like that sometimes. As impulsive and as, as harmful as the tongue can be, 
uh, it's like it's very uh, susceptible to the influence of evil. Um, and, and this idea of it's set on fire by hell is kind of like an origin. Um, where does it come from? Where does it get this tendency? Because this is going to be um, contrasted in just a little bit with the wisdom from above. Um, uh, or back in chapter 1, that wisdom that, that comes down uh, from God. So you get this kind of opposition. So verse 6 is a mess. Basic idea, the tongue can do a lot of harm. You probably know this, yeah. Uh, the tongue is a fire, so pure, uh, which is kind of like we get pyros. Uh, setting on fire, phlogizomai, so it's a verb there. Um, and phlogizomino, so same. The second two times, it's a verb form. First time, it's the noun, fire, which we get pyro from. Which is, it's interesting, because usually with fire, it's, it's about purification yeah, well, here it's it's a, sets on fire. Yeah, it's destructive. Um, yeah, I think we just read that uh, a little. Have we read that yet? Uh, how a forest is set on fire. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, verse 5. Yeah, so all the tongues. Yeah, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. So it's the destructive nature. Um, all right, verse 7. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, The reference to taming creation might make us think of Genesis 1. When humans are created in the image of God, they are called to rule, to take care of creation. And he's going to come back to this idea in the next verse. So it's kind of like he's preparing for it. This is what you were made to do. This is what humans were to be about. There were to be those who rule and tame, representing the image of God. Um, but here we have this tongue, verse 8. No one can tame it. Uh, this negative view of the tongue, helping us already realize our need for an outside help. You can't do this. You need help to tame the tongue. Uh, verse 9. With it... We bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the image of God or the likeness of God. So you see how he's coming back here. Uh, I said first day, and I recapped here, we're meant to think, as we're growing in wisdom, we're meant to think more about things like God thinks about things. And if we are looking at fellow humans the way God does, we see those created in his image. And if we... Um, train ourselves to see those around us as made in the image of God, it gets a lot harder to curse them, right? It gets a lot harder to make fun of or to belittle or to shame people based on shallow things. When you're thinking, would I really um, humiliate someone made in the image of God because of fill in the blank? For James, it's whether they're poor. Uh, For us, it might be age or beauty or wealth, Um, But when you're trained to see things as God does, you see that for the pettiness that it is. Um, A similar idea I got from reading um, Bonhoeffer's Life Together. It's this great little book. Take it slowly. Um, But I remember reading that, and one of the ideas, I don't know if he said this explicitly or if it just kind of hit me, uh, he talks about um, kind of meditating at the foot of the cross 
or, or interceding it from the foot of the cross. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but the image that stuck in my mind was, if I am at the foot of the cross and I understand myself from there, then it shapes how I see myself. And if from the foot of the cross I also consider those around me, it dramatically shapes how I view them. If I see you and you and you, not as just you are, but as those from the perspective of the foot of the cross, then how could I ever think anything but highly? You know, if my Lord and Savior uh, is on the cross for you, then I'm not going to be involved in this kind of uh, shaming or cursing or whatever it might be because I'm learning to see things from God's perspective or from Christ's perspective. Uh, So verse 10, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. Um, Just as he has called them earlier not to be double-minded, so here don't be double-tongued. He's wanting them to be uh, or the, the call to purity earlier, this, this kind of focus, this full-on commitment uh, to, to Christ, to godliness, uh, not half-hearted, not like those um, who are tossed uh, by the waves of the sea. I think we should extend this idea, too, about recognizing others in the likeness of God. Uh, as James is, was referring it here to how we speak, we should also think about then how we treat others. Uh, in any form, whether it's with our words or with our actions. It would certainly have a dramatic effect on our ethics, and already has. I mean, I know you guys, many of you in here, uh, are doing this kind of thing, and it is, it is wonderful. Uh, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Uh, again, you can see him pulling on some uh, Jesus... Uh, language here about by your fruit you will know them. Uh, no tree, no good tree bears bad fruits. Bad tree bears good fruit. Um, maybe James is repeating this stuff, kind of like Hilton said, because they're needing to hear it a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth time. Uh, because they hear it, it sounds like good news, and then they forget it or it doesn't sink in. And so James is just, he's not bringing in necessarily something new, uh, but helping them to see what they have already seen once. Uh, So, as we kind of get to this transition point here in chapter 3, words are powerful. Uh, It is hard to control them. And most of us probably have experienced uh, the power of words in our own life. I know as a teacher I get evaluations, and the ones that I remember most are the negative ones. I remember getting uh, my first semester teaching. uh, I was a teaching assistant, and so I got a class every Friday, of 20 freshmen. uh, And I only remember one review and it was a negative one all that stuff oh i loved it he was great i don't even hear it what i heard was boring and that is that's like you know cuts me to the heart there uh, as a someone trying to teach freshmen and it happens every year it's it's you know i get all these reviews all i see almost all i look for is the negative ones i don't know why but but it has that kind of power um junior high that's like the worst stage in everyone's life right because of the power of words I wasn't, you know, physically bullied, but I was verbally bullied, and I would have rather been punched uh, than to have been, um, you know, shamed and made fun of for, you know, all the various reasons I was shamed and made fun of. Um, And, you know, that's 20-plus years uh, ago, and I still feel like there are ramifications even now where I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to do things that might make me... uh, And it's all because of the power... uh, 
the negative power of words. I had one girl write, um, sticks, that sticks and stones uh, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. She says in her journal, that's a lie. Uh, we heal quicker from broken bones than from breaking words. Uh, so, so absolutely uh, true. On the other hand, as, as you kind of get hints of this in James, I mean, he is using words to speak to them. They can have a really powerful positive effect as well. I remember as I was applying for PhD programs and I wondered if I uh, kind of had what it took, um, I talked to one of my professors who was my mentor, uh, Doug Foster, some of you might know him, um, and uh, he'd had me for a couple classes, he'd mentored me and I said, do you think I have what it takes to do PhD program? And he said, absolutely. And it was just like, you know, like, it just kind of took me through my PhD program with confidence because he spoke with such assurance. Um, and so words are powerful, and so we treat them uh, as such. Um, okay, uh, going now to, Josh, yeah. Don't believe, don't believe that. There's that Christian song, Speak Life, you know, Speak Life, and I don't know all of them, but that's the, that's the gist of it, Speak Life and People. And that, what you just said, at the same time in a week that I've heard somebody who went and got their doctorate, hmm. based on a one-liner, you know, uh, and, and I think we ought to really think hard about <coughs> how powerful and positive and how big a flip you can make. And even though you've said all that about you hear the negative, you don't hear the positive. You did hear the positive. Yeah. And, and how, you know, what a wonderful thing it could be for a, uh, an intentional week of how many people can I bless. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Just, and, and don't underestimate the power. I'm telling you, everybody in this room, if you went around, you could tell a story about somebody that, that spoke life and you and it stuck. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the piece that's so exciting about, you know, the kids we work with, you have a chance to do that. Yeah. And they hold on to that, and then it's precious to them. So I don't, I don't think we ought to minimize that at all. Yeah, I, no. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. So we take seriously the power of the tongue. For bad, as some of you live with that negative voice in your head that you got from childhood, perhaps, telling you you're never good enough, and for good, uh, as we speak words of life uh, into each other that's, that can carry us. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? I love how he follows this up. We think of wise, we tend to think up here, uh, just like James doesn't limit faith to our heads, so he doesn't limit wisdom to our heads. Instead, you show it by your good life, uh, show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. So what does wisdom look like? It looks like good life uh, lived gently. <laughs> what an interesting way to start out his description of wisdom. Sometimes I have my freshmen, I say, write down a description of wisdom, and then we read this, and uh, they can see how James is, is he's giving them kind of an alternative way of thinking. This is what I think is some of that God's eye perspective. It's not all up here. Just like faith without works is dead, wisdom without uh, lived, without uh, wise living is dead. If you know it and don't live it, you're a fool. Um, might be another way of thinking it. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't, boast, don't be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, uh, demonic, or devilish. So he contrasts wisdom not with... Um, stupidity, not with lack of knowledge. The contrast with wisdom 
is vice. What does wisdom look like? It sounds like virtue, which he's about to get to. What does foolishness look like? It looks like envy and selfish ambition. Very interesting, right? How he's thinking about what true wisdom should look like and be about. And he sees it as wisdom from above. Uh, This brings us back to chapter 1. If any of you are lacking wisdom, ask God who gives uh, generously. Um, Verse 16, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. And here's where I really like to to show the freshmen how their definition of wisdom might be um, updated or altered. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Wisdom sounds like the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. So the wise person, this isn't a a knock against knowing things. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But but there is a sense in which the the wisest thing you can do is grow in Christ-likeness. The wisest thing you can do is bear the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The foolish thing you can do is to not bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, as we, I think we have some great elders here. I love that we don't seem to, um, or we seem to pick elders uh, who are shepherds. That's a neat thing that we do at Otter Creek, that we're recognizing a particular wisdom uh, with that ability to shepherd and to have these kind of characteristics. And I think that's what, um, that's part of what makes the culture here, uh, in so many ways, a neat culture at this church. Um, this is what wisdom should look like, because we're looking from God's perspective. Um, so, you can be a rocket scientist, but if you are uh, selfish and envious, you might be a fool from James' perspective. And you can have barely passed, uh, you know, getting um, your GED, but if you are pure and peaceable and gentle, you might be the wisest person in the room. If we're learning to see things and value things as God does, if we're learning and understanding this wisdom from above, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for or by those who make peace. So he's calling us to be peacemakers. All right, I bet I am. Yes, I think I'm out of time. Comments? we got room for a question or comment or two? Yeah. Just an observation. Someone was making about the power of positive speech. Yeah. Um, like perhaps some in this room. I, I grew up in uh, the deep south middle of a pretty bitter racial strife over rights. Yeah. And uh, I was an early teen. And the, uh, I'm just thinking about the significance of tomorrow. Yeah. When you remember the birth date of Martin Luther King. This speech in 1963 probably wasn't the only thing, but was a massive, massive change. I remember as a youth reading that speech. Yeah. And everything I heard about Martin Luther King being traitor, communist, the window. Yeah. Uh, just let's remember that tomorrow. Yeah, he, I meant to say something about him. What he demonstrates um, with this wisdom is both humility and, remember, it's first of all pure. It's still speaking the truth. As James calls us to, to this, he's not calling us to a avoidance of conflict, but it's speaking the truth in love. And no one did that better than, than MLK, right? Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our home at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we will still love you. 
are you kidding me? How do you say something like that? And that's, that's part of what changes things. The truth and gentleness and love, it's, it's just outstanding. Yeah, thank you for, for reminding us of that. Okay, uh, James 4, for next week.